Our second uh, reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 2, which will follow on from the first reading. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the earth, of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was a tree... In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, friends, let's, um, we're going to start. Um, I'm glad Owen caught me a captain before. Always wanted to be a pilot, but not one. Uh, but let's turn to God in prayer and then we'll have a look at the first of our series. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you did not leave us lost, that you've revealed yourself through your written word, that we might know of your way and the ways to live, and that we might know of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that throughout this series you might help us see your big plans for all eternity and help us see how we might be a part of it. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as you've already heard, we're starting a new series today. Uh, the Bible in 10 weeks, very optimistic. But what we'll be doing is different to what we normally do. What we normally do at our church is we pick different books of the Bible and we work through books of the Bible consecutively, systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and that is our staple. But for this series, we're doing something different. We're sort of stepping back and we're going to take a bird's eye view of all of Scripture, looking at 10 big events of the Bible to see what God's big plans are. Okay, so that's what we'll be doing. But I'll start today just to, uh, with a little quiz, just to see how, how well you know the Bible. Okay, so I've got uh, four questions here. The first one, how many books are there in the Bible? It's multiple choice, so it's not too difficult. 56, 66 or 76? 66, yeah? Okay, it is 66. All right, second one. Roughly how many human authors are there? Yes, as opposed to God being the author. How many human authors are there? Okay, oh, multiple choice, I forgot this, sorry. 50, 30 or 40. So it's a rough estimate. 30, 40. The answer is around 40. Okay. What about this one? Over what period in years was the Bible written? Was it about 900 years? 1,300 or over 1,500? C, I hear C, I hear 900. The answer is the last one, C. Okay, what about this one? How many chapters are there in the Bible? Anyone try doing that? Oh, I should have, I need to give you the multiple choice, don't I? A, 1189. B, 1192, or C, 1199? It's a, I know it's a random guess, right? The answer is A. A. Okay, so there are some stats of the Bible, and, and if you think about those numbers and those stats, the Bible written over a period of at least 1,500 years by about 40 different authors, 66 books, and you look at it all and it looks big and confusing. How are we meant to make sense of the whole Bible? I mean, if you've tried reading the Bible, you start at Genesis, it's pretty interesting. You get to the end of Genesis, it's still pretty interesting. You start Exodus, it's, it's pretty good. And then later in Exodus, it starts to get a bit dull. There's all these measurements and tabernacle stuff. And then when you get to numbers, you're lost. What's all this all about? And so how are we meant to make sense of the Bible? So, so many stories, so many different books. And when you look at it, there are crazy stories as well. A talking donkey, writings on war. How are we meant to make sense of the Bible? And so what we'll be doing in this series is, what we'll find is that as we consider the different chapters of the Bible, the different books of the Bible, the different stories of the Bible, and though, though they are written by many authors on many different subjects, what we'll be trying to do is to see that the Bible is in fact just one book. One book with one big story. Because you see, behind all those authors is one ultimate author, God himself. He stands behind all these human authors. And we read in passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed. That is, though human authors are used, God is the ultimate author. And not only that, there are many subjects in the Bible. You know, it talks about 
different things, every chapter is different, but yet there is one supreme subject that binds the whole Bible together. And that subject is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this himself. He says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That's a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus saw that himself. It was all pointing forward to him and it was fulfilled in him. And then the New Testament, of course, is about Jesus himself. And so what this means is that as we come to look at this big picture of the Bible, we are to see that the Bible is not a random collection of stories and books by different authors. Rather, it is meant to be read as one book, one big story with one ultimate author on one supreme subject. And so, if you want a summary line, it's this. God's supreme plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That is what the Bible is about. God's supreme plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll see this progressively as the Bible unfolds. Okay, and so what this is called, uh, I'll sort of teach you a little technical word. This way of understanding the Bible as seeing it, seeing as one big story that centres on Jesus, that looks forward to Jesus, is called biblical theology. Okay, it's a way of understanding the unfolding story of the Bible and to see how everything flows and points forward to and is fulfilled in Jesus, the supreme subject. Okay, we got that? So we're going to be doing what we, you know, technical work, but what we'll be doing is biblical theology over these 10 weeks. And one of the major themes that we'll see as a thread that sort of ties the 10 weeks together, one of the major themes that we'll see is the theme of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God at that time? And so the kingdom of God, what we're talking about here is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Who are God's people? Where is God's place? Where is his kingdom? And what is his rule? And so what we'll be doing over the 10 weeks, this is just a primer, but we'll be looking at, here we go, so I got these pictures from uh, study material that we've used before. So we'll be looking at the big events of the Bible and to see how they're actually one big story. One big story. And so you start from creation and we'll move all the way to the new creation. Okay, One big story, one plan of God centred on his son Jesus. Now today we'll only focus on the first one, creation. So we'll start with this. History's origin, the very beginning of everything that we know of. So how did it all begin? So that's why we read Genesis 1 and 2. What is it all about? Well, what it's all about is it's about God first before it is about us. So we'll learn about God, we'll think about God before we think about our place in his creation. And so if you've got an outline, you'll see three big points. We're going to look at what do we learn about God? Secondly, we're going to look at what do we learn about us, about humanity, about the human right race. And finally, we're going to look at what do we learn about the kingdom of God at that time? What was God's pattern? What was God's established kingdom like? Okay, so firstly, let's look at the first one. What do we learn about God? Now, if you keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see that the very first line of the Bible is a big statement. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, this is as far back as we know, in the beginning, who was there? God. God was there already. And what did God do? Well, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in these very few words, it's, it's so rich in theology already because this is the origin of the universe. This is as far back as we know. But even in these very few words, it actually forms our world view. It actually teaches us how we are meant to think of this world, this life we have. And so even in that very first verse, it actually there, right there and there, refutes atheism. Atheism says there is no God, but this very first verse says there is. He was there already there and he's the one who created everything. So what do we learn about God? Well, four things I want to say. Firstly, God is eternal. That is, God always existed. God always was. Now, when I teach uh, little kids um, Christian education over across the road, CRE, one of the common questions I always get from these little kids is, who made God? Now, it's probably a question you may have asked yourself or, or are asking and or have answered. How do you answer that? Who made God? Now, if you were living during the time of Moses in the ancient Near East, you would have been taught different creation stories, different creation myth. And in those stories, gods were created. There were many gods. And in one of these myths, the Babylonian creation myth, it's called the Enuma Elish. In this story, the gods came about by cosmic battles between the gods. They had baby gods, and that's how gods were born. And so during the time of Moses, this was the prevailing belief. This was what people thought. And the god that survived is the strongest god. So in this story, Marduk, the Babylonian god, he defeats Tiamat, and from her carcass, he uses the dead god, from that he, he creates the world. He creates the heavens and the earth. So that's what was sort of taught during the time of Moses in the Near Eastern area, Middle East. But then when Moses wrote down Genesis chapter 1, his very first verse was to refute that idea. You see, in Genesis 1, there was no one who made God. God always was. God is eternal. Otherwise, if someone, something created God, well, that thing would be God. God is eternal. This is the fundamental belief of all Christians everywhere. God is eternal. Second point about God, and that is God is transcendent. God is transcendent. What this means is that God is not of this universe. God is not in this universe. Rather, he stands outside this universe. This universe does not constrain God. He's outside it. He transcends everything in creation. Now, if you think about that, what that says is it actually refutes another sort of uh, worldview. It refutes pantheism. Now, in pantheism, it's a belief that God is everywhere and in everything. It it's, tends to be the belief of the Eastern religions. And so in this belief, God is in the animals, in the trees. And so when you go hugging a tree, you're in a sense hugging God. But what we're seeing here is that God is in fact transcendent. He's not of creation. He's outside of creation because he made it. He transcends all that is in this world. 
And if you know that God is transcendent, it helps us understand why it was so profound that God the Son came into this world that was unheard of, extraordinary, radical, that God would take on human flesh, would come into his own creation. This is the transcendent God. He's separate from us. But yet he would come in, take on human flesh, become a man, becoming one of the created. And so the, the second point here is that God is transcendent. He's distinct. He exists independent of creation. Now the third point is that God is powerful. So we'll have a quick look at some verses here in chapter 1. Let's have a look at what God does here. I mean, anyone who does that is God. Right? God spoke and it happened. God spoke with his powerful words and things came into existence straight away. Verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, let there be an expanse between the waters, and there was. Verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered, and that happened. Verse 14, 20, 24, 26, let there be, let there be, and it happened. That is power. That is power beyond imagination. This is the powerful God. I mean, if you think about it, it sort of works the same way with humans. If you speak and if you say something and it happens, it actually shows a bit of your power, right? Now, I wonder if this is the case for you. Do you feel powerful when you pick up the phone and you dial some numbers and you say, I would like a pepperoni pizza? And then somehow, 30 minutes later, that pizza comes at the front door. You have to pay for it, but it comes. It makes you feel a bit powerful, doesn't it? You only said something and it happened. But you see, this is quite different. It will be a bit like, let there be a pizza now. It's not going to happen, right? You see, God is powerful. He creates with his powerful word. It comes into existence from nothing. And we even see in this passage, God didn't even have to repeat himself. Let there be light. And God's waiting around. Nothing's happening. Let there be light. Light, come on. Come on. It doesn't happen that way. God is powerful. His words are powerful. And notice that things came into existence from nothing. You see, it's unlike what they were thinking during that time of Moses. Uh, they thought that things came into existence from the part of dead gods. But yet here we see God is powerful. God spoke. Things came into existence from nothing. And God even creates life itself. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord breathed into his nostrils, that is the nostril of Adam, and the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You can't just go on creating life if you're not powerful. God is powerful. His words are powerful. Now, final point about God, that is he is purposeful. God is purposeful in all that he did. In all his plans and purposes, he had some intention there. We actually see this in chapter 1. You see how wonderful and deliberate God was in the ordering of creation. Now, we won't go through this in detail, but I'll quickly summarise this. What you see on the, in the six days of creation, you've got three days of forming, three days of separating, and then you've got three days of filling. So God forms it, sets it up, uh, divides. So first day was between light and darkness, second day was between the sky and water and third day was dividing between the land and sea. So that's what we see in the first, second and third. 
And then the second lot of three days, he fills it in. Fourth day, he fills in the light and darkness. What is to give light? Well, that's the sun, star, moon. On the fifth day, he fills in the sky and the sea with birds and fish. And on the sixth day, it's the land animals and finally the humans. You actually see that God is an ordered God. He has purpose in his design, in his creation. He is purposeful. And at the end of every day, do you notice what we read? What we see? God's assessment of his creation? We we read, it was good. It was good. It was good. And it was good because it served the purpose for which God designed it, for which God created it. And so the sun would shine, the animals would run, the fruits would grow, the flowers would blossom. It served its purpose and so it was good. And so this is the pattern of the beginning. It was good. God created the world, the universe, and it was good. Now we also see God's purpose in creation in setting a goal for creation. Now what do you think that goal is? I wonder if you've noticed that. The goal of creation is the seventh day. That is the day of rest. The day of enjoying his creation. It was meant to end. The six days of work was meant to end. And so have a look at chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. You see, in establishing the kingdom of God, the aim, the goal was to rest, to enjoy his creation. And the wonderful thing is, people are invited into his rest. And so this is what we see about, uh, about us, about God. God is eternal, God is transcendent, God is powerful and God is purposeful. Now what about us? What about people? Where do we fit into God's grand plan, his plans and purposes? What part do we have in the kingdom of God? Well, what we see in these two chapters are the blueprints of human life, human being. We see the blueprints here. And so when we look here again at the order of creation, on which day were humans created? Was it the seventh? Sixth day, right? After the animals. And if you think about that, there were six days of creating, uh, three days of forming, three days of filling. Humans are last. Now what does that say? It, it might suggest maybe God forgot us and he left us to, to the end. Or perhaps he left the best to the end. And in a sense, that is the case. God has, in a sense, prepared all of the universe, put everything in its place, the stars, the moon, the sky, the mountains, the birds, the animals, the fish. And at the end, when everything was ready, humans came along. So what that says to us is that God created all this for us to be enjoyed under him. And so what we're seeing here is that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now this is so important to remember. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. So what does that mean then? What do we learn about being human? You see, in Genesis we're given the blueprints of being human. Well, firstly, what we learn is that humans were created with a purpose and they are precious to God. They're not a product of random chance or cheap accidents, but we were purposed by God and we are precious by God. 
So this, if you think about it, refutes evolutionism as a world view because there is a God who created us with some purpose. Now, if I am, if you think about this, if I am just a product of some cosmic accident, some random processes, what that actually says to me is that I'm really just a freak of nature. I'm not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be alive. You see, there would be no object, objective meaning to life if I was just an accident. And so if you think about that, it wouldn't actually matter if any one of us acted compassionately or in a harsh way. It wouldn't matter if any one of us was merciful or ruthless, just or unfair, loving or hateful, because it wouldn't matter. If we were just the product of some random accident, morality becomes an illusion. You do whatever you like. It actually doesn't matter. You're just an accident. You have no purpose, no meaning to life. You know, what, whatever you think up of yourself, well, that too is an accident. But if I am here because one powerful being, one powerful God with some purpose created me, created you, then there is meaning to life. If there is a creator who designed us, who created us for some purpose, then you were made for some purpose. There is meaning. And so what's that meaning? What were we created for? Well, this gives us the blueprint, but it's not exhaustive. Have a look at chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So after God prepared the world, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now what this says here in those two verses is that out of all the things God created in the universe, out of all the animals, it was only the humans, it was only the male and the female who were equal before God, who were made special who were created in the image of God. Now what this means, this idea of being made in the image of God, is that we are distinct from creation. Just as God transcends creation, we were made to be different from those things around us. We were made in the image of God. And that means we are meant to be different from the bears, from the monkeys, from the mouse, from the ant. Not simply in how we look, But when we talk about us being made in the image of God, we're talking about our functional distinction. We were made for a different purpose, a different function. But we also have a different status. Different function, different status. And so let's consider that. We were made with a unique function as God's image bearers in this kingdom of God. And that is that we are to be God's representative in this world. We are to rule this world. We are to care for it. We are to tend it. Have a look at verse 26. God God says, rule over the fish of the sea. He says, human beings were meant to be rulers, ruling over this world, not, not corrupting it, ruling over it, taking care of it. And now look at chapter 2, verses 15. We're told here, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The man, the first man, Adam, he was a gardener. It's 
perhaps not suggesting that we're all meant to be gardeners. I hate gardening. But he's suggesting that we, we are made to look after his creation. And so the picture of the kingdom of God at the beginning. God is God. Humans are subject to him. And creation is made subject to humans. And if you think about that, we are meant to be over this creation, to rule this creation. If you think about that, it's actually what we see in this world. Right? It's what we see. It's the humankind that is ruling this world. We don't do it well. We fail. We corrupt it in many ways. And and for reasons we'll see next week. But you don't see donkeys sitting on thrones, do you? You don't see hippos making decisions from the White House, do you? You don't see monkeys in Parliament making legislation, do you? It's not meant to be a joke. They're humans. They're humans ruling the world. It's what we see. We were made to rule. We were made to rule. That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so if we are made to rule, we are to rule, but we also are to remember that we are to rule under God's rule. We are to obey him. He's the creator. He's the one who transcends everything. We obey him. Creation, in a sense, obeys us as we are God's representative. So this is the blueprint. This is the way it's meant to be at the beginning. And so we need to understand from the beginning, humans created with a purpose, precious to God, not random, not cheap. Now associated with being made in the image of God is that we have a distinct status over all creation. We have a a special dignity as human beings. And so what that means is that we have a moral responsibility. A moral responsibility that you expect from humans, but you don't expect from animals. You see, we are not mere animals. Those scientists, they will try to come up with some romantic idea that we are nothing more than glorified or modified monkeys. You know, it sounds romantic, right? You are some bigger, more developed, hairless monkey. And they say you share 99% of the DNA with the chimpanzees. The thing is, we are not merely monkeys. Not simply because there is still that 1% difference. We also look quite different. Some more than others. and We are different. But we are different by appointment. We are different to the animal kingdom to the monkeys by appointment, by status. That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We were made unique with special dignity. And so have a look at chapter 2, verse 18. This passage, this bit shows how how vastly different we are from the animals. Chapter 2, 18, after God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now, what did God do after that, after God said, I'll make you a helper? Well, Adam's standing there. God brings along all these animals to him. In a sense, finding a helper. Adam's thinking, I don't want these monkeys and donkeys and elephants to be my helper. And so in verse 20 we read, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. We are different from the animal kingdom. Adam was different from the animal kingdom and his helper was not to be found from the animal kingdom. Rather, as we read later on in chapter 2, his helper was to come from his own flesh and bones. And of course that helper was Eve, the first woman. And so if you, if you understand this, we are different from the animal kingdom, it's because we were appointed, we have a different status. We are so 
not to behave like the animals. We are to be different from the animals because we have a moral responsibility. Now, if you think about that, it is quite different in the animal kingdom. If you look at the animal kingdom and you watch what animals do, now on the documentaries, the BBC documentaries, the animal kingdom is filled with violence, with cruelty. It's quite bizarre. You know, sometimes we think, oh, animals are so nice and lovely. They are cruel. It is violent. But that is the way of life in the animal kingdom. So, for example, I love watching the lion documentaries. A male lion, this is what, what happens. A male lion, a young, powerful, strong male lion, he's on his own. He, he doesn't have his own pride yet. Now, he sees another male lion with his pride, all these lady lions on the hill. He wants those lady lions for himself. And so what does he do? He's stronger, he's powerful. That other male lion is getting old. He goes and kills that male lion and then attacks them all for himself. You look at that, it's in the animal kingdom, it happens all the time, and you're not going to say, oh, bad lion, bad kitty. You shouldn't do that. You should find your own lion somewhere else. But he goes and kills the male lion to take him all for himself. Or with, with the chimpanzees. An adult male chimpanzee would kill baby chimps to take the mother chimp for himself so that the other gene will not spread in his one. But that's what happens in animal kingdom. And you see that? You're not going to say, bad monkey, naughty monkey, you shouldn't do that. That's what animals do. They are violent. They do those sort of things. But for humans, made in the image of God, given a unique status, uh, a unique uh, dignity, if anyone does anything remotely like that, that is wrong. You cannot do that. Someone's married their hands off, right? You don't go kill them. And so, if we think about world history, even the world today, what Hitler did, you have to say that is wrong. It was wrong for him to kill people made in the image of God. What is happening now in northern Iraq with the ISIS, persecuting Christians, that is wrong. You see, humans were made with a unique dignity. We are not mere animals. But of course, people do argue that we are no different from the animals. In fact, one professor, uh, he was from Melbourne, now he's at Princeton, Peter Singer. He rejects the idea that places the lives of our species, that is the human species, above any other species. And so he would question, why should we think that we're more important than the, the donkeys or the caterpillars or the pigs? That is his genuine question because in his worldview, God is out of the picture. And so there is no appointed status. There is no distinct status for humans. And so in his mind, and this is, his, uh, this is what he teaches, he would say killing an adult chimpanzee is worse than killing a newborn human baby. Do you get that? Do you hear that? This is what he teaches. This is in his worldview. God is out of the picture And so he would say, killing an adult chimp is worse than killing a newborn human baby. Why? Well, he says there's nothing wrong with killing fetuses since they have no capacity for pain or pleasure. And he thinks that's the solution to overpopulation and disability, just killing them off. They're just animals. Humans are just another species. He will end up saying this. He, He actually goes on to say this. He says, our present absolute protection 
of the lives of infants is a distinctively Judeo-Christian attitude rather than a universal ethic value. So he actually recognises our, our desire to protect human life. That's a Christian thing. He actually gets that bit right. It is a Christian thing because we've got God in our worldview. We know what the blueprint is like. And so this is why Christians must always, and we've seen it throughout human history, Christians must always uphold the sanctity of human life. We must protect human life, all human life, young, old, born, unborn, male, female, disabled, able. Everyone is equal before God because everyone is made in the image of God. Christians are always on about protecting life, especially the poor and the vulnerable and the weak. In the ancient world, a common practice was infanticide. That is when you kill newborn babies. And they would do that because back then they don't have the ultrasound that we have and so they can't tell the gender of the baby. And so when the baby is born with these poorer families who are looking for that heir, they would kill baby girls. It would happen. It would happen. But back then, during the first few centuries, the Christians would, would work against that. They stood against that. They protected the little ones. Christians must also protect all life, born and unborn. And so this is a terrible situation in Victoria. Abortion is so easy. But Christians, we must be against that. Because all human beings, born or unborn, are made in the image of God. Another one is euthanasia, which is being pushed. Weak and vulnerable and old, they are made in the image of God. Not our right to take any life. But you see, it shouldn't be a surprising thing for us to see that as our society moves further and further away from God, these things creep in. As our society moves further and further away from the the worldview in which God is the creator, it comes easier to accept things like abortion and euthanasia because we forget the dignity and status that is given to humans because we were created in the image of God. Now finally, humans are dependent beings. We were not made to be autonomous beings. And so what this means is that we're not meant to think, none of us are meant to think, I am the master of my own destiny. I am the boss of my own life. That I decide what my life is about. That I make up the rules as I please. You see that we were not made to think that way. In fact, in fact to think that way is it's really just an illusion because Though I might claim I'm the master of my own life, I really don't have any control. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's just an illusion. You see, we weren't made to be autonomous. We were made to be dependent, dependent on God for everything. Now, in in Genesis, we see that, that Adam and Eve, they were dependent on God for all things. Have a look at chapter 129. What did God give them? I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole world and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Everything that we eat comes from the hand of God. In fact, our life itself comes from the hand of God. And so we were made to be dependent on God, not autonomous. And we express our dependence on God by obeying him and by submitting to his ways, submitting to his rules. And so that is why, if we were made that way, that is why the very first thing about being human 
is actually to know God. The very first thing about being human is to know God. Any attempt to describe humanity where God is not in the picture, any attempt to think about human life without God is going to be a distorted view of humanity. And that is why in passages like Proverbs chapter 1 where we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You read that several times throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, in a sense, if you do not fear God, if you do not know God, in one sense, you don't know the first thing about being human. If you do not know God, if you do not fear God, you do not know the first thing about being human. We only know who we are in relation to God. We only know where we stand in relation to God. He is creator. We are to be dependent on him. And so these three points. This is what it means to be human. This is the blueprint. This is God's design from the beginning. And so what we've done is we've looked at God. We've looked at what God is like. We've looked at us, what human beings are meant to be like, what we were made for, our purpose, our design. Now, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? What has God established right at the very beginning? Well, what God has done is he's established the pattern of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is about God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we'll see this as it develops throughout this series. So at the beginning, the pattern of the kingdom of God is established and it looks like this. I'll make it bigger next week. But God's people, at the beginning, what do we see? Well, all we see is Adam and Eve. They are the people of God. Where is God's place? It is the Garden of Eden. This beautiful, fruitful bliss. God's rule? Well, God rules through his word as he commands, as he teaches. And they, in response, get to share in perfect relationship with God. And so what we'll be doing each week is that we'll be developing this. Moving on to see how the kingdom of God is, is uh, destroyed next week, how it is promised again and how it is prophesied and how it is fulfilled and ultimately consummated in Jesus Christ. And we'll see this pattern. This is one big story, remember. And so what we've seen today is we've looked at God, we've looked at us, we've looked at the kingdom of God. At the beginning, it's a beautiful picture a perfect picture of harmony between man and God, man and woman. It's perfect. It was like heaven, the Garden of Eden. That was how life was meant to, that was what life was then, but it's not what life was meant to be like. But of course, when we look around the world today, it's not what we see, is it? And so, in one sense, you have to come back to see what happens and what Jesus does to it. Because next week we'll see this all breaks apart. But from today, what we've seen today is the blueprint of humanity. If all that we looked at today is true, that this is the beginning of the universe and this is God and this is who human beings are, if God is in, indeed eternal and transcendent and powerful and if, it's, if he's purposeful, and also, if humans, if we are purpose and precious, not random and cheap, if we are uniquely dignified, not mere animals, if we are dependent, not autonomous. Now, if you, if you, if you actually understand all that, that has massive implications already on how we are to live our life. 
without even thinking about Jesus yet, what he does to it. We'll get to that. But if you actually understand God as God is, humans as we were made to be, it has massive implications for us now. And so, if God is my creator, if God is your creator, then I must worship God. There's no way around that. If he made me, he deserves my worship. He he deserves my obedience. I must depend on him. If God gave me life, if this is true, God is the one who gives all of us life, then I must thank him for the life I have. If God is indeed transcendent, then I must revere him. I must fear him. If God is powerful, then I can trust him. And if I am indeed created by God, what that also means is that I'm accountable to God. All I do, all I say, what I think is all accountable to God, if he is my creator. If God created me and purposed me for something, it means that my life is meaningful. There is purpose, there is intention. I'm not an accident. If I am precious to God, then my life, your life, is never worthless. It's never worthless, no matter what we experience. If I'm made in his image, then what I do matters. I'm his representative in this world. If you are made in God's image, then how I treat you, what I think of you matters because you are made in the image of God. If I'm meant to be dependent on God, then it means that I don't actually need to think that I have to be in control of my life. I can actually rest assured and be dependent on God. And so what we've seen today is the blueprint. God and us and human life and the kingdom of God is established. It changes as we work through this series. But what we've seen today, the blueprint of what it actually means to be human. What it means to be human. And so it's worth reflecting on and also worth reflecting on this next week, what went wrong. What went wrong with the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are indeed not lost, that you do show us the blueprint of creation, what life was meant to be like. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue to study your word and look through these big events of the Bible, you help us see how there is indeed hope, there is eternal life in your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.